community allows shame to be the tool of the oppressor. We want to think about how Sam came to Arabs who are burying their own daughters, and then we don't really acknowledge how we're burying our own daughters right now. It's hard to watch your community be more concerned with an abuser's reputation than your well-being. Abuse should not be this common. Part of the reason that accountability is so hard to attain is because we've devalued the role of women to such an extent that accountability does not seem necessary. When we experience something like this and we don't get the accountability that we are deserving of and entitled to, it makes us doubt ourselves and it also makes us feel like this behavior is normal. What I've been repeating to myself repeatedly is my rights come from Allah subhanahu wa and anyone who is denying me those rights is denying what God gave me. They don't have the power to do that. So give yourself permission to speak your truth because that's what you deserve. And that's those. That's your right. Don't let anyone talk you out of your truth. Advocate for yourself because you have an amendment to God to protect yourself. In the words of Bell Hooks, we cannot dismantle a system as long as we engage in the collective denial about its impact on our lives. You're listening to Unsween and Unfiltered, the podcast, episode 24 of season 3. Protecting the vulnerable and the oppressed is a duty of ours in Islam, yet we have failed to stand firmly in the face of injustice, specifically abuse and the many forms that it comes in. In today's episode, special guest Iman Barre, who is a dear friend of mine, is choosing to courageously share her story by speaking up about the various accounts of abuse, harm, and hypersexualized rumors that have been spread about her. As a community, I believe that it's time that we go beyond the unfollow and block button when it comes to taking action against abusers. Why do we place the burden on the victim to share their story so publicly without the support of community leaders at times? Given the lack of accountability, we are creating loopholes for abusers to get away with what they have done, which means we are also inherently protecting these same abusers and instead, we're dissecting and placing blame on the victim, sending a clear message that they are not safeguarded nor to be believed by the community. In this conversation, we discuss how shame is used as a tool by the oppressor against victims and survivors of abuse, why it's important to publicly name abusers, the lack of accountability amongst our communities, and the dangers of victim blaming. To anyone who has ever endured such harm, may Allah protect you in the same manner that you are choosing to publicly share your story in order for others to not fall victim to these abusers. May you always be believed and supported in every capacity. Please pass on the following resources to your family and friends. The Peaceful Families Project focuses on preventing all types of abuse in Muslim families, specifically domestic violence. Secondly, there's HEART, which provides Muslims with the resources, language, and choice to nurture sexual health and confront sexual violence. Lastly, there is FACE, which stands for Facing Abuse in Community Environments, and they promote safer Muslim communities by holding religious and community leaders accountable for abuse. Let's dive in. Thank you so much, Iman, for joining me for this discussion. You know, we're going to talk a lot about just the topic of abuse, shame, victim blaming, what accountability actually means and so much more. But I would love for you to reintroduce yourself and then inshallah, we can get right into it. Assalamu alaikum. Thank you so much for having me. I love talking with you in all capacities. Likewise. <laughs> I guess you could describe me as like OG mosque kid. Like I grew up very much in the masjids, went to Islamic school my entire life or for most of my life, but on classes every single day after Islamic school, Saturday school, Sunday school, the whole bit. Knew every nook and cranny inside of my masjid. 
knew which aunties and uncles kept candies in their pockets. <laughs> <laughs> the mosque was like my playground as a kid. As I got older, I started to notice a lot of things about communities and more specifically my role or my relationship to my community as a young girl, as a woman, and how that started to change as I started to, you know, hit my teenage years and like how suddenly like the mosque that was my playground was no longer a space that was welcoming for me. So I always think of myself as like, <laughs> I like, I felt like I like divorced myself from the Muslim community and just said like, God's in my heart. I'll just, you know, I have my, my Ajana friends, I'll hang out with them because this vibe is just not for me. Like I didn't, I didn't like what I was seeing. Um, and I thought it was just my community. And as I got older, I started to realize that we are actively unmasking young women. We're unmasking women in general from religious institutions. But we also, as a community, and I still include myself in that, I say we look at women as collectible items, as property, really, right? So as I start to get more successful in my profession, like I'm an award-winning journalist, I have had films premiere at New York Film Festival, I have had two sold out shows at New York Fashion Week, been invited to Paris Fashion Week. I have a very impressive resume for someone my age, also just finished a law degree. And that's not to, that's, you know, I recognize first and foremost that risk is from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and I thank him for everything. But it's our community's obsession with collecting successful young women or young people in general. But when it comes to women, we like to look at them and say, look, Islam doesn't impress women. Look at how successful our girls are. Look at all of this. So we like to use women as tools in PR and marketing when it comes to our communities, but we don't really like women. <laughs> uh, it's actually, yeah, that's, let's leave it at that and we'll get into it. That was a heavy intro. But you made a lot of great points, unfortunately, because some people do experience that divorce from their mosque, from their community. I don't know which is first, but it doesn't really matter. It's just, it's still a divorce between something that you were attached to, something that you grew up with when you were younger. And it's such an interesting perspective because it's like, I think when I was like coming of age, when I felt that as well, when it's like now you feel like this heavy burden just on your shoulders and anything that you do is being watched by not just your family, not by just your extended family, but your entire community. And it's a very uncomfortable feeling. You know, when you talked about that divorce, how did you how did you navigate that? Because I don't think we talk about that. People think that, okay, that's a she just stopped going to the mosque, but it's it's a little bit more than that. I I mean I was like maybe like 13, 14, 15 years old when this really started to like when I really started to become more aware of this and you don't have the language or the capacity to really process it. All I knew is I no longer like going to the mosque. I no longer like going to Azumas with my mom. I no longer like going to an Islamic school. And so as a kid, you're not telling you're, you're not understanding why that feeling suddenly exists. You're not saying my role in my community has changed. You're saying I don't feel good here, but I feel good here. And where I felt good was with my non-Muslim friends, right? So you don't have the capacity or the language to have difficult conversations. Plus, who is going to listen to a 14-year-old in the masjid, you know? Who is going to talk about how uh, inappropriate the khutbahs you're hearing are? when you literally know nothing, you're a child. So instead of, you know, picking a, a battle that I knew I couldn't win at the time, I just hung out with my non-Muslim friends. And I honestly continuously have said, like, my non-Muslim friends actively make me a better Muslim in comparison to a lot of the Muslim people I both grow up, grew up with and the Muslims that I still know. I, I think it's like recognizing who the mosque becomes a safe space for and how this continuous subliminal messaging of, like, inferiority of women is played in our mosques, right? Like how many stories have come out about religious figures, religious influencers, I guess we can call them, are abusing women, are 
conducting themselves in ways that demonstrate they have no understanding of religion at all. And we still, every single Friday, the sheikh will somehow fit into his khutbah something about hijab, something about how women need to obey their husbands. But we never talk about the roles of men, the responsibilities of men or the rights of women. We're very much so in our community. And I say we because it's even the people who like to market themselves as feminists, quote unquote woke, I hate that word, who see women as commodities. And I I can dive into what that means because as soon as someone hears that, they're like, absolutely not. I respect women. I went to the Women's March. I voted for Clinton, whatever. But it's when you only see purpose in women when they're serving or when they're following kind of the path that you're comfortable with. When you're not comfortable with women's truth, when you're not comfortable with the range of their emotions, when you're not comfortable with their individualism. I think that for myself, it's so interesting how... I've watched people use my accolades, my success, my resume to make very particular points. And you would think the fact that I'm quite literally an award-winning journalist, I've gone undercover and interviewed extremist fighters. You would think that would add a little bit of weight to my name in my community. And it does when it benefits them. But when it comes to me speaking my truth about a sheikh who is openly grooming young women, when I talk about things that make other people uncomfortable, the assumption is that women lie. When, you know, historically, if you want to talk about women lying, you have women lying when there is a power imbalance. Can we honestly say women in our community have enough power to spread malicious rumors about chefs? I have a folder of evidence about what a guy who's studying Vimo, which we'll get into later, has been saying and or doing to me for the last year. A folder of evidence. This man has nothing, aside from text that he edited, that I can prove that he edited. And he's still more believable, even though he's been proven to be a compulsive liar. So, yeah, <laughs> we have work to do. We have a lot of work to do. I've, I've told you this offline, like, alhamdulillah, in my masjid, I mean, like, honestly, I, I can't even think of how I could have gone through my divorce if it wasn't for the leaders at my particular masjid. But I know that not every masjid is like mine. I know that not every masjid has a female scholar on deck that is able to give khutbas and, well, not more so khutbas, but just like lectures and whatnot. Like, we have that at my masjid. And it's just like this feeling where, like, the women in my family do feel seen at the masjid. But... The more that I find myself online, the more that I'm exposed to finding out that that's not the same for everybody else's community. That's not the same for everybody else's masjid. And that's not okay. Because if we're truly following Islam, the woman shouldn't feel the way that you're feeling right now. And I do want to talk about why we're even having this discussion in the first place. You hinted at what you've gone through, but let's talk about what you're going through. Mind you that there are certain details that you have to keep private because you're literally going through court hearings because of this. So I guess a quick summary is for the last year, almost last year, last like 10 months, a man that I've never met before who promotes himself as like a student of Dean, whatever that means, has been spreading hypersexual rumors about me, um, which he's admitted to fabricating, which he's admitted to making up. When I found out what he was doing, when I saw the screenshots of these obscene things he was saying about me, I called his chef and I was like, pretty much like your student is sick. Like he's doing these things. He's not only done it to me, he's done it to other women. You need to make him stop. It wasn't a, it wasn't a mediation. It wasn't an attempt to like reconcile anything. It was literally like you allegedly taught him Dean, where is this in what religious beliefs do you have where this is appropriate? So I spent four hours on the phone where this man like tried calling me an abuser, a manipulator, a gaslighter, all of these things. And then the end was like, you're right. I made all of this up. So it's like typical narcissistic behavior. Like 
you did this to yourself. You, I didn't do this. If I did this, you deserved it. If I did it, it's not that bad. Like all of these excuses. And then the end, cause I'm not someone you can, you're not going to bullshit with me. At the end, it finally became, I'm sorry, you're right. I did all of these things. He admitted to wanting to use my reputation to make himself sound more impressive. It literally, like you can read the text. He literally openly talks about how Iman is the dunya definition of success. Why wouldn't I want to be with her? Like all of these things, openly talking about using me. Again, I've never met him. Like it's actually like the creepiest, most desperate sounding thing I've ever heard. Sounds very much like locker room talk of a guy like in high school bragging about hooking up with a girl. And like, here's the thing. Islamically, there are very specific consequences of dealing with a man who spreads sexual rumors about a woman. In this case, this man literally was telling people we were sleeping together. I've never met him. Quite literally have never been in the same room with him. He also uh, described what I sounded like in bed, which I don't even know in what world somebody would do that, let alone the fact that we've never met. It's sick. I don't know what they have in upstate New York, right? Like it has to do with what is going on in this community up there because I'm not the only woman who has these complaints and it's specifically this semester, specifically these people involved. I don't even know how to get into it because it's such a complex story, but like that's the big summary of like what he did. And then after that, I found out he was openly grooming four other young women. Um, And by grooming, I mean using religion in a way to get them to trust him. And he would basically brag about how he uses religion to like pretty much like seduce women. There's one text where he talks about how like him telling women that if he's interested in marrying them, he has the Islamic right to see what they look like. Whether that means nudes, whether that means without his hijab, without their hijab on, that's up to like, you know, the individual person. But like you can see this person is using religion as a tool to engage in sexual relations with women screaming red flags like that's crazy this man was also a former chaplain giving him overwhelming access to young women and it's all the, a lot of the women involved are like 18 19 20 i'm 28 so he this is he was an idiot for trying this with me but what i want to really highlight is the fact that the number of elders in our community who know what he's doing who know how he's conducting himself and see this as acceptable behavior that's what concerns me but this man is a product of the family that raised him and the community that raised him and every single person who allowed him to believe that women are are his to use because that's essentially what it comes down to. Think about how many times a sheikh in whatever mosque has given a khutbah talking about how important uh, it is for women to be modest, how important hijab is, what happens to women on Yom Al-Qiyamah who don't wear hijab. A lot of sheikhs love to talk about how there's going to be more women in Jahannam than men, but they constantly exclude the fact that there's going to be more women in Jannah than men as well. So it's like you really see this like anti-women sentiment in our messages. And it comes from men and women. This patriarchy is so deeply embedded within our communities what we've somehow began to think of it as ingrained in religion when it's really just ingrained in feeble and weak-minded people in our communities who have no authority and no power in their actual lives and choose to use religious spaces and and religion in itself to control people who have possibly less power. In that case, a lot of times it's women, right? So the fact, the reason that I bring all this up is because if modesty was so important, right, which we are, it is forced down our throat, that modesty is like, women uh, have to be modest, you're, you won't enter Jannah if your, uh, what is it, the hem of your pants doesn't touch the floor, uh, your voice is out of, don't wear perfume, blasting every single influencer who takes off her hijab on Instagram. And yet, this man I've never met before in my life is telling people we've slept together, and the chef was literally like, will you consider marrying him? Do we care about modesty in our religion or are we actually just like committed to this idea of controlling women? If modesty was so important, which I mean, I still think it is, but 
the people who are forcing modesty down our throat do not actually believe it's important for the reason that it's important in Islam. If the sheikh who allegedly understands Sharia law allegedly studied Islam, and I use the word allegedly because I have no facts to actually support that this man knows anything about deen, Islamically, for spreading these rumors about me, which he admitted to making up, the Islamic consequence is payment. And to acknowledge publicly that he made this up, I think it's also a hundred lashes. <laughs> like there's, there's very clear consequences to this. But the sheikh was like, don't tell your parents, don't do anything about this, leave it to me. Please, would you consider being with him still? And another one was, Iman, you're his savior. Allah put you in his path to fix him. As if I'm for him. There was no acknowledgement of how horrific and disgusting this act was, how everything was centered around him. And honestly, I was, was in my last semester of law school, was right around finals. I did not, all I wanted was for this man to stop telling people we dated. Because at that point, it was, it, I mean, it still is embarrassing. I would never date a man like that. I would never date a man who looked like that, acted like that, came from a family like that, because deserve better. We all deserve better, right? His chef seems to think that after doing all of this to me, he still has the right to breathe the same air as me. We can say Islam gave women rights, but we also have to acknowledge that every single day our communities take those rights away. If my Islamic right is to be paid for what this man did to me, the chef had no business then saying, marry him or don't tell your parents or keep this between us because that's actually not Islam. That's misogyny. And we need to understand how to divorce the two. It's also very important for us to acknowledge that we like to think that like we have all these excuses when men in our community are being accused of heinous acts, which generally are true. Like I've seen very few instances where things are, you know, there's another side to the story, but we use 70 excuses. We use forgiveness. We use all of these things that actually are not grounded in Islam. Like the 70 excuses thing, it, it doesn't have to do with someone oppressing another person. Like if someone says, this person has been openly abusing me, your response is not, we have to give our brother 70 excuses. And I'm also going to push back on that at all because the 70 excuses only seems to apply to men for whatever reason, right? We don't give 70 excuses to women. We love, how many Azums have you gone to where all the khalat are sitting around talking smack about other women? 70 excuses? Does that get brought up? The influencers who stop wearing hijab, does anybody give them 70 excuses? We need to separate misogyny from Islam because this marriage of the two is why we are having so many people leaving Islam. And I, I want to understand what these sheikhs are taught because there is a hadith where the Prophet said that it specifically talked about how severe the consequences are for sheikhs who mislead communities, for sheikhs who are hypocritical. So this idea that like, oh, we got to forgive them. We got to do this. We got to do that because the sheikh is like, whatever. It's like, actually, that's not even Islam. Like, where are you getting your anything from? There are more severe consequences for sheikhs because they're supposed to know deen. So this casual forgiveness for things that men like Noam Ali Khan have done, this like, let forgive and move on. Absolutely not. That is cult thinking. That's not Islam. And what makes me so angry is these are not like the, we all, always talk about how it's like the extremist Muslims. It's the, and by extremists, I mean, uh, I use air quotes. People who we like to think of like more like conservative Muslims, right? As being like a little too intense. So they're, they're like this, actually, no, in my experience, it's the chefs who um, have like hashtag BLM in their Instagram posts. The chefs who like to talk about like issues in the black Muslim community, which are all very important, but we see these as progressive chefs. So we expect better from them. You know, what's what's really sad is that like any woman that has faced any form of abuse and when she comes forward with what she's gone through, it's not to protect her anymore. You've gone through what you went through, which is unfortunate. It's to protect the potential other women that are going to 
cross paths with this abuser. And that's the sad part. And this was a very high level overview of what you've gone through offline. You showed me all the tags, everything that you've gone through. And it's just, it's so much more complex than the fact that he sent sexually explicit messages about you, which that right there, that should be enough for him to have been kicked out of any leadership program that he's in, of any chaplaincy, anything, or even any masjid. The fact that you have to go to a court proceeding to fight this man I don't understand how it has gotten to that point. I want to talk about, you know, you mentioned how the sheikh kind of said, like, let's just keep this behind closed doors. This is something that us women have heard so many times and possibly not from a sheikh, but possibly from family, from other community members. Like, oh, hey, you went through this. I get it. But like, let's just keep it hush hush. It's almost like you completely silenced me. And now you're not even allowing me to protect anybody else from going through this. Again, I keep mentioning the fact that you are going through a court proceeding. This is why we have to keep his name anonymous for the sake of this conversation. But can we talk about why it's important not to keep their names anonymous? Why that when we keep their names anonymous, we're basically inherently protecting abusers? And how does shame play a role in all of this? Specifically because you are going through something where somebody is spreading these malicious rumors about you. And it's somebody that, again, we can't reiterate enough, you've never met this person. You were never even in the same room as this person. Yet they were comfortable to spread these rumors about you, and yet they have still their sheikh or their community members still protecting them. First, I want to say being a religious leader in our community should be a privilege. It's not a right. Um, it should be something like look at how the four rightly guided khalifas were chosen. It wasn't based on who wanted to be a leader. It was based on who was deserving of it and who people had faith in. Becoming a religious leader in our community is the ideal role for a narcissist. It's the ideal role for a predator because these men have seen from a very early age that there is no accountability, that they can do whatever they want and they will get away with it. I want all of us to think about the golden boy in our community, right? The one who from a very early age was always at the mosque, always, you know, entered Quran competitions, was always given affirmations and like made to feel good because of his role in the community and like was seen as like the good kid. Everyone was told to be like him. So what that does is creates this narrative that they are like the perfect person. Um, we give them almost like godlike qualities where we think they cannot falter. They cannot make mistakes. They are like untouchable. So in the case of this man who the my stalker, uh, actually, I don't want to claim him the man who's stalking me. This person has I can guarantee it from an early age has been someone who's compulsively lied. You don't go from being a normal human being to suddenly fabricating a relationship with a person. You practice. You practice a lot. And when you look at the text that he sent about me and then the text that he sent or the conversations that he has normally in person, it's like two different personalities. All that to say is he's an exceptional liar. I have one version of the story because there's only one truth. But somebody who's a compulsive liar, who is an obsessive liar, who is a narcissist, is going to repeatedly manipulate facts and manipulate circumstances based on their current needs. So the reason that it's important to name them is because I can guarantee you, if we were not looking at evidence and we were just looking at a narration of the story, I can guarantee you his is going to sound more compelling because mine is going to be told with anger because I'm disgusted. And his is going to be told with this pathetic, like invoking empathy type thing. Plus, keep in mind that He's had his entire life to perfect his lies because he's been doing this his entire life. So the reason that it's important to public, make the evidence public and the reason that it's important to openly talk about this and name him is because I can, without seeing what he's going to say, I can 
draw an outline or write an outline about the types of lies that he's been telling about me and why they shouldn't be believed. And the text that he sent about me, I would say, played up the hypersexual black woman narrative. Then he went for the crazy ex-girlfriend narrative. Then he went for the angry black woman narrative. Oh, and then he also in court decided to tell the judge that I was angry because he treated his non-black ex-girlfriend better than he treated me. So he's playing up all of these societal stereotypes, right? And this is a man who posts articles and if you can call them poems, he writes poems about protecting black women and all of these things. So it's very counter to the public persona that he's built. So the reason, again, um, that it's so important to talk about these things publicly is because it gives in any courtroom, in any proceeding where both him and I have been able to speak um, about the story at the same time, I've always won. There's never been a time he's been able to spread these rumors with me present and not have each and every single one of them debunked. I'm an investigative journalist. I have like, <laughs> I'm also, inshallah, when I get uh, admitted to the New York bar, I'm about to be an attorney. I can compile evidence, right? I know how to piece things together. I can fact check everything that he's saying and disprove it. That is why men like this like to do things in private. It gives them the opportunity to continue to manipulate facts. Islamically, he should not be allowed to speak about me without me present. If he's having some like, Iman is like this, Iman is like that, I should be allowed to be there to defend myself. Otherwise, the people listening should do the Islamic thing and stop listening to him. They're choosing not to. This is what I mean where I say 70 excuses doesn't exist for women. When I had the session with his chef, him and his chef had a call and I told him what the issue was. And he's like, okay, well, let me see what he has to say. So the three of us were on a call together. That was the last time I was able to defend myself after that. And I recorded this call and you could very clearly see how defeated he is by this. After that, every single conversation he had about me was in private with other Muslim leaders who should know Islam enough to say, this is bullshit. We don't do this. Let her say her peace. Right. So just to mention the court proceeding briefly, he's not suing me in civil court for defamation because, again, nothing I'm saying is untrue. I'm actually suing him for defamation. He's suing me in family court claiming that I'm harassing him by telling people that the rumors he spread about me were untrue. And I want to point out a timeline. The last time I talked to this person, which is something he admitted in court, was November 23rd. He filed this lawsuit January 14th. Four days before that, on January 10th, there was a meeting between him and other Muslim leaders with this organization that he did a fellowship for because he was openly talking about using religion to manipulate one of the other young women in this fellowship. In that accountability session they had with him, they used the apology letter that he wrote me to show that he had a pattern. Four days after that, that's when he sued me. So you can very clearly see it was retaliation. But then you have a number of Muslim leaders who can also see the timeline in this does not make sense. This person is retaliating, who are choosing to sit back and watch as this man terrorized me in court through the last year of my, the last year of law school. And the reason that he chose family court is because... It's the most, I don't want to say low cost, but it's like the trial is pretty non-invasive. Like it, it, you don't need a lot to get like a, an order of protection. What he fails to acknowledge though is I have deep pockets. Like I'm not suing him for defamation in civil court for $250,000. I'm not the type of person to do this to. I'm well-resourced and very capable of taking care of myself. As is, alhamdulillah, I have a family with, who is willing to back me in whatever way possible. And then unfortunately for his sheikh and all the other Islamic leaders protecting him, Muslim leaders protecting him, not Islamic in any in any capacity, they're also going to be named in this lawsuit because they assisted him in his little like attempted reign of terror, whatever you want to call it. We need to step away from this idea that we have to protect 
abusers because abuse is a form of oppression. It's very different than someone who committed a, a sin that is a sin against God as opposed to sin against other people. Like there's different types of sins. When you oppress a person, right, which is abuse, Allah doesn't forgive you until you forgive them. And that's also something that you deal with publicly. If you look at Sharia law, the consequences are not private consequences. The story of Aisha radiallahu anha when she you know, Sahaba who was spreading rumors about her. There was one Sahaba in particular who, he, very poor, and Abu Bakr radiallahu anhu was giving him money, like paying, uh, supporting him in some financial financial capacity. So after Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala sent the ayah that cleared Aisha's name, radiallahu anha, he went to Abu Bakr, uh, and Abu Bakr was basically like, like, why are you here? Like, why are you in my face after what you, after the rumors that you spread about my daughter? And this guy said, the Sahaba said, I didn't spread rumors. And Abu Bakr said, yes, but you entertain them. So for every single person who listened to this man and didn't even give me the opportunity to explain myself, there's still consequences. In that story, and, and like the hadith and the Quran are for lessons for us to learn how to live and operate in our own societies. Like when you, you avoid all of the rights that Islam gave women, all of the things that we are rightfully given, and then you continuously talk about our duties. Islam is fair and balanced. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is most just. You do not have a religion that forces women to obey their husbands. Not, not that Islam actually does, but that talks about the importance of obeying your husband, the talk about the mo- uh, importance of modesty, all of these things, and then void it of all of the benefits, right? It's like a give and take. So when you talk about how important it is for women to obey their husbands, we got to really break down the qualities of this husband that we're obeying. When you raise men who are empty, morally bankrupt, who feel like their wives are their mothers as well, and like they have no, we have no rights over them. What is that what I'm obe- obeying? No, because this person's not even obeying God. Like, why am I going to, you know, it, our community allows shame to be the tool of the oppressor, which is one of the reasons we really need to remove it from our vocabulary and speak truth, right? There is such an importance placed on truth in our community for a reason. It's like uh, one of my favorite eyes in Surah Nisad talks about like the importance of like, oh, you who believe stand firmly up to injustice, whether it be against your parents, your relatives or yourselves, whether he be rich or poor for Allah is most just. Look at the wisdom in that, even if it's injustice against yourself. There is a, a woman who came forward this is a, during the time of Prophet and she went to uh, the Prophet, peace be upon him, and said, like, Ya Rasulullah, this man, and like trigger warning, like sexually took advantage of me, to use my elder words. And she pointed to a specific man and said it was him. So this man was supposed to be, supposed to be killed. And the man who actually did it came forward and said, no, Ya Rasulullah, it was me. So they let the man go free, the uh, wrongfully accused man. And then they killed this guy who came forward. And then the prophet, peace be upon him, turned to the woman and said, Allah has already forgiven you. So we love to talk about how women lie and how women do this and women do that. But look at how the prophet treated her. That's 70 excuses. That's a traumatic experience. Your memory is going to be faulty. It's completely fine. And then look at the men who actually did it. That is standing up to oppression, even if it's against yourself. And so my concern is, you have men and women who are not principled like that, not even close to being principled like that, don't even understand the teachings in that and the wisdom in that, who are the people who we turn to when we need help. When it comes to this, like the voices of women are just being silenced by their abuser. And when they finally have the courage to leave that relationship or that marriage or whatever it is, which it takes a lot of courage, they basically have their same voice now being silenced by their community. And I'm pretty sure that's how you felt, because here's somebody like you who has ample amount of evidence 
And you have told me offline that that really didn't even matter. Can we talk about how all that evidence that you had against him basically was almost kind of overlooked? I'm not going to say how, but this is going to end very badly for him because he doctored evidence that he submitted to court. For, uh, he's also someone who wants to be admitted to the bar. Like, that's a really big deal. And like, I keep things documented. So to prove that he he altered these texts that he's trying to use to make me look a particular way are like, it's like Allah is most just. Everything's going to come back to bite him. It's like, okay, the chef wants to tell me the appropriate response to this man openly spreading sexual rumors about me is a man would you consider marrying him it's like great you're now named in a lawsuit as well we always uh, i know there's like those things floating around on instagram that talk about like how like patterns with narcissists and it's like i never did that well if i did it it's your fault well if i if it's not your fault then you deserved it whatever whatever right that it's like the first argument that our community always has is where is the evidence I had the evidence. The pushback was, fine, just forgive him. It's like, this man is still telling people I'm his ex. I'm absolutely not going to forgive him. Exactly. <laughs> it's absolutely sick. And like, I, I genuinely feel like a lot of people in our community are dependent on women who hate themselves. Like, I feel like we seem to think that like women loving themselves, standing up for themselves, respecting themselves is actually like outside the fold of a step. <laughs> like, how dare somebody get angry at me for not just letting this go? In Canada, it's, sexual harassment is criminal. He's also facing criminal charges. Like, I do not play about my name. I did not work this hard to be me to have some weird eggplant head shaped person. I know you told me not to say Because I, I don't want people saying, oh, look but, at me, man, she's angry, which you have every I right am, to be. I am angry. That's the thing, though. I'm going to be angry. And if people are bothered by my anger, they need to ask themselves why. Exactly. The appropriate response is anger. So I'm, I'm, I'm going to be angry. And if it offends people, don't listen. Sorry. Exactly. I love you, man. I really do. Because I, I'm just in awe of you because it takes a lot of courage to talk about this. And you're not only just fighting him, you're fighting the community that's supporting him, which I just, it's really hard to wrap your head around that. When I know I'm right, I know I'm right. And it's like, I literally will have nobody tell me that his actions or his community's actions are correct in any capacity. If I know what my rights are Islamically and you're denying me those rights, the fault is yours. The problem is yours. The, the error here is yours. So I'm very much like, I also want to point out that he repeatedly did this to women between the ages of 18 and 20 who would not be doing this. I would not be doing this if I was 18 to 20. I'd be scared. If a chef told me you let it go, I would let it go. <laughs> a lot of us, a lot of our communities commit shirk by basically either worshiping whiteness, worshiping misogyny, or worshiping our chefs, right? If we think our chefs are beyond fault, we're giving them godlike qualities. And we got to really, that's, that's pretty scary. To me, it's not about being right. It's about what is right. If I'm wrong, show me that I'm wrong. But if you're not capable of showing me that I'm wrong, if you're, the reasoning you're giving me is void of logic, void of sense. No, like I'm very protective of myself. I love myself deeply. And what abusive people do, what narcissists do is they prey on people who they think have a lower sense of self, like people who would not do this for themselves. But when I tell you, I will spend the thousands of dollars that I need to, the $30,000, whatever it is to sue this man in civil court for defamation, I will do it. Even my dad was like, Baba, this is too much. Just leave it. Like, don't give us your energy. Like God deal with them. I was like, Eba then? <laughs> Absolutely not. <laughs> you know, that's actually an interesting point because a lot of people do say that, like God handle it. I will handle it and then God will handle it. The last text I sent to Sheikh is like, I'm making sincere dua 
that Allah never forgives you. To, to this abusive man, to his family, to the chef, to the other women involved. Like that's literally, I, I pray for that all of Ramadan. I pray for that every single day. And it's just like people like that should not be in positions of power. Like we cannot be causing harm to ourselves like within our community and then talk about how the ummah is a body. If a single part of the body is hurting, then the entire body is hurting. Or the entire body should respond or feel it. We pick and choose how we want to interpret Islam. We want to talk about all these injustices that other people do to Muslims, but we never want to talk about the injustices Muslims do to Muslims. One of my favorite chefs once was like, we're not going to liberate Palestine when we can't even get our shoes in a straight line in front of the mosque, right? It's like the little things. It's the little things that matter. And understanding that like everything comes from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Allah does not change the condition of people till we change ourselves. We want to think about how Islam, we want to brag about how Islam gave women rights, how Islam came to Arabs who are bearing their own daughters. And then we don't really acknowledge how we're bearing our own daughters right now. We're being suffocated. It's absolutely sick. And I am so thankful. Alhamdulillah, I come from a family that supports me through anything. And largely like, for the most part, I come from a pretty, I like my Muslim community for the most part back home. Um, so a lot of the criticism that I gave was like what I saw growing up, alhamdulillah, that's changed. And then some other things that I see more generally since I, I'm very much a nomad. But we apply things from the Quran literally. But if this is the book for all mankind for all time until, you know, the end of times, we got to start reading between the lines, right? Like if your women are silenced in the mosque, if your women are praying in closets, if your chefs, which this, the chef involved in this, has actually told multiple women who are in abusive relationships to be patient, stay with their husbands. Tell me that is not burying your daughters alive. When your fitrah comes from God, your nature comes from God, when you're telling people to not be themselves, to suffer in silence, to be patient, that is an act of oppression, right? You have an amana. Our selves, our beings, who we are, we have an amana to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to protect ourselves and take care of ourselves. We don't really acknowledge how a lot of the things that are forbidden to us are things that cause harm to our body. We need to look at the wisdom in that. So when you tell a woman to be patient through an abusive relationship, you're literally telling her to allow herself to be open to harm, right? And you can you can talk about tawakkal, right? You can talk about uh, leaving it to Allah Santa. You can talk about all these things. But then I want to talk about uh, the story of Hajj radiallahu anha, like the, the wife of Prophet Ibrahim, peace be upon him. When she was left in like the desert with no water, Tawakkal was her knowing that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala was going to provide for her. Tawakkal is an action of the heart. Um, Sister Yasmin Mujahid said this, and this is something like I re- repeat to myself daily. Like it's an action of the heart, which means you have to believe. It's like if you want to talk about like new age woo spirituality, it's manifestation. It's believing that God's going to provide for you and then doing everything that you can to look for the tools that Allah is going to put in your path to provide for you. So she's praying for water. Her, her newborn son is crying, dehydrated, hungry. She's dehydrated. Instead of just sitting there and praying, right? Instead of just sitting there and like asking God for something, she runs between Safa and Marwa seven times. And imagine she runs there once, there's no water, runs the other mountain, there's no water, runs back, no water, then still runs back. Knowing that God's going to provide is continuously looking for the, the, the source, continuously looking for the help. It does not mean I got a no once. It's like God doesn't want us to suffer. I just get so frustrated because it's like, look at the Quran. Allah does not change the conditions of people until they change themselves. What are we changing? We are not changing. So we talked about how tawakkul is an action of the heart and how Islam tells us in the Quran, like Allah does not change the conditions of people until they change themselves. But we don't actually practice that or look at what it means. We see, like if something doesn't work out once, we see it as like, okay, that's it. Like this is, this is the answer. But it's like, 
what if Hajar did that? What if she said there was no water? Khalas. It's like, no, like, it's like, you need to want it enough. It's like the best way to put it. You have to know that God is going to provide for you. You have to know in your core that like, God will change this condition for me. I just need to keep believing that God will. It's like, have a better image of your Lord. I think of all the stories of all the prophets and messengers in the Quran and like how all of them were tested. Prophet Yunus, how long was he in a whale for? I still, it blows my mind that he was in a whale. I cannot I wrap my head around that. Prophet Musa's story, honestly, that's actually my favorite. When he was in front of the Red Sea and like Pharaoh's people were behind him and he's standing in front of the Red Sea, the children of Israel were like, this is the end, khalas. He was like, my Lord would not abandon me. Like that gives me chills. It's like that. And then when, when Prophet Ibrahim was about to be thrown into the fire, Angel Jibreel came to him and he said, this is like, I always, I'm like, how did this happen while somebody's being lobbed into the fire? <laughs> <laughs> Angel Jibreel came to him and said, is there anything you need? And without a hesitation, his response is not from you. What he needed was from God, not from the angel. So it's like, that's what it means to have faith in God. It's like he, to know that as you're being lobbed into the fire, that God will change the condition as long as you just believe in him. Like that's tawakkul, that's iman. And like, may all of us be able to have that type of faith in our creator because it's hard. The actions that you do every single day, it's work. It's spiritual work. This is continuous that we need to be chipping away at everything in this dunya that's making us doubt our creator. That's what I aspire to. So to me, it's like the reason that this is not a lot to me, like, yeah, of course, like it's stressful. It was horrible. My grades would have been way better had I not had to deal with this. But I'm like, there is a God like this will be dealt with accordingly. And every single person who acted in ways that contradict the teaching of Islam, may Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala treat them with the same callous disregard that they've treated me and other women. I, I hope every single person in this gets exactly what they deserve. I'm getting a little emotional because, well, man, like you're such a dear friend of mine. And it's just so sad to see you go through this. So brave in the way that you're doing it. But for you to have gone through this and well, it gives me chills for you to still have so much faith and so much trust in Allah. Because like I've said this so many times on the podcast, nobody talks about when you are being abused and that faith between you and God gets a little shaky. And it's like, I realized like looking back, it wasn't more so like my, my faith in God. It was like my faith in my community because like I was choosing to stay in the abusive relationship because I feared more from the abuse I would receive from the community, from the fact of being labeled as a divorcee, from being pulled and picked apart of why your marriage didn't work. But here you are, man, like you're like not only taking on him, you're taking on his sheikh, you're taking on the community. And it's like, why? Why do you have to take on all of these people and these groups of people when the truth is right there? And you said it yourself, like this is all in the Quran. Like if we were actually practicing Islam in the right way, this is all in the Quran. All the answers are there. You don't even need to be dealing with this to this extent. You only have had to deal with this while you're still in school. It's such a blessing to be able to also come from a family that supports you because I can't even imagine you having even to take on your own family. Some families don't even believe their own daughters. Like that's the sad part. I was grateful that I, my family believed me, you know, but imagine that. Imagine like all the like the 18 to 20 year olds that you were talking about that. Yes, actually, we have proof majority of our abusers actually end up going back to young girls because they're very impressionable because they don't know better because you and I were once 18 and 19 or 20 and we would have never known better. We would have just, like you said, swept us under the rug and you would have went about your life understanding that like, oh, it was just a rumor about me, but it's not just a rumor about you. Like the things that he spread about you were disgusting, were very explicit. That should have never, ever happened. You know, you and I also read the book, The Will to Change by Bell Hooks. It was just such a simple line. She basically said, we can't dismantle a system as long as we engage in the collective denial about its impact on our lives. The fact that people are just denying that this is abuse. How can we ask for accountability when 
they don't even see what they did is wrong. But it's like, that's the one thing that I feel like is driving such a huge wedge between the victim who had to suffer this and for her or for him, but majority of the time it's for her, for her to get the justice that she deserves. Like you were asked to actually give your abuser another chance. You never even gave him a first chance, but to give him a chance and to, to be with him. What does accountability mean? Like what action steps can we take in order to actually receive the justice that we deserve, in order for us to make sure that this abuser never does this again. It's twofold. It's not just like, how do I protect myself, but how do I protect other people from dealing with this person? First, I just want to answer, I love that question. I love everything that you said. I just want to answer another point where you talked about like how scenarios like this, traumatic incidences like this make you lose faith in Las Fondada. I've been there. Like there's been every single time that a black person is murdered by police, or by any, you know, anyone really, and it's racially motivated, and there's no justice in the courts. It's like, that is like, how do I live on this earth? Like, how do I, how is this where I have to be? It's hard to watch your community be more concerned with an abuser's reputation than your well-being. It's hard to belong to communities that, let's just be frank, don't value women. Only value women that's that are able to be controlled, right? When you become the bad person for speaking truth. But the way that I look at it is like, Allah SWT is doing me a favor, just like he did when I was a kid, right? Like I left my Islamic school because literally it was run by people who were racist. <laughs> like it, it was horrible. Yeah. And it's like, I, I wouldn't have been me. I would have been, I wouldn't be me if I graduated from school there because I would have never, I would have up to 18 been conditioned to be voiceless. And who I am is so connected to my writing and my voice. So I would have, it would have taken me years to undo that harm and then rediscover myself and who knows where I would actually be. In the same instance here, I see this as a blessing from Allah SWT and a reminder that I can only put my trust and my faith in Him because every single one of us will be disappointed if we do anything else. Even when someone disappoints you, like you pray to Allah SWT for help and then you reach out to someone for help and that person disappoints you. It's very easy to feel like you're helpless but it's just remember Hajjah, right? Remember that that one isn't your solution. The solution is out there. It's just not this person. So you keep asking, you keep doing the work. Like I could have folded, like I could have just stopped and like let this guy sue me in family court and like pretended it was my fault or whatever. But no, I'm right. Like I'm quite literally right. There's no one on this earth who will convince me otherwise based on the events that have actually happened and based on all the evidence that I have and the evidence that he does not have. It's not lose your faith in God. It's lose your faith in people because they shouldn't have your faith to begin with. Right. And for myself, like I've been playing it for my own insecurities because my own traumas, I've been playing it very small for the last three years. Like I've been a phrase that one of uh, my friends has been using is humbly hoed. Like I've been like allowing myself to accept way less than I know that I deserve because we are force fed this narrative as women in our communities that we have to be humble, that even if we are so successful, so accomplished and all of these things, we have to just thank God. But it's like, you're allowed to take pride in who you are. You are allowed to be, you are allowed to say, I deserve better. The chef that told me to marry this guy after he spent a year trying to ruin my life, he doesn't believe that women ever deserve better. That's why he tells women to stay with their abusers. It was just a reminder that I can, I can say I deserve better. I can say that I don't like these, these people, these things don't serve me. And I, I'm just at a different stage of life. And I've, it's not arrogance. It's just knowing that these people are not on your level and are not able to understand you. You cannot communicate with an audience who is committed to misunderstanding you because they are not your people. So exactly what I did when I was like 14 and like kind of like peaced out on my own Muslim community, you 
got to just leave this, like, this is almost like Hijra. You just leave the scenario and find yourself a better community. You find yourself better people who are deserving of your energy. And when I say that I've been playing it small for the last few years, I mean, like, I'm looking at some of the, the Muslim, like, the talking heads that we have, the people who are, you know, who do none of the work, but every single time there's a protest are like running to the mic, trying to be famous. Like those people, those are the people that cannot be our leaders. Those are the people that we need to out. Those are the people that we need to watch out for because the people who are deserving of leadership positions, the people who are deserving of not even deserving of an audience, the people who are qualified to be speaking to an audience are the people who continuously believe that they don't know enough. Those are the people that we need to be uplifting. I've had people reach out to myself or other friends. Uh, I call them the the, the beardos, <laughs> a group of like Muslim men who are like wallah bros, but like the hipster chefs who use like yoga malas as tasbih. Like, you know, that specific type that's like trying to be like the cool chef, but doesn't know anything about Islam and doesn't really like only praise if they can get it on Instagram. Those people, I've had a number of those people reach out to myself and other friends for like my commentary on specific current events or whatever, right? I had one person reach out to me talking about from from the UK talking about Black Lives Matter protests and like that type of thing and police accountability. This person knew nothing about the topic, like quite literally nothing. How do I see him in a couple of weeks talking about police brutality on CNN? You have people who know nothing, quite literally nothing. It's okay to know nothing. Just start learning. But then they don't want to learn. They want to be leaders. It's like, that's very cute that you started reading the autobiography of Malcolm X when you were 30. But some of us have been reading this since we were eight. This is not to like knock people who are just at the stage of learning, but acknowledge when you need to be a student first, acknowledge when you need to learn and do the work. And we need to watch out for people who are trying, who are working to be leaders just for the sake of leading. False prophets are the ones who, I mean, all of them are false now, but using that saying, like false prophets are the ones who aspire to lead as opposed to running away from the responsibility and the burdens that come with actually being leaders in our community. Going back to your point on accountability, Islam has very clear consequences for behavior like this. We need to start giving women back the rights that God gave us. Stop talking about our responsibilities in Islam and stop talking about our privileges. His family owes me money. This is beyond him at this point. The chef also owes me money. Every single person who engaged in conversations about me in a way that allowed this person to believe that he's right, run me my check, right? And it's like, if you don't, I will spend the money. I will spend the 30K for trial and we'll go through court, but I shouldn't have to. The chef's initial response instead of marry this guy should have been like, you owe her money. A chef who counsels women in abusive relationships to stay with abusive partners is never going to give you your Islamic right. So advice to anyone listening is if you're ever in a situation like this, get an app on your phone called Tape a Call. Record the call. Record absolutely everything. Even if you feel like you're not going to need it, you're going to need it. Do not go into any of these meetings alone. Take your own chef in there with you. I wish, I honestly just wanted this to be dealt with as quickly as possible, which is why I didn't get my dad involved immediately. I honestly thought after apologizing, it was enough. It was going to go away. But the day after apologizing, he decided to, he told everyone a number of personal things people confided in him as a chaplain. He told everyone these stories about people who went to him and whatever, and the very, very personal stories. So when those people started finding out what he was doing, he blamed it all on me. He was like, I'm so sorry, Iman is my girl. I thought I could confide these things in her. So the day after apologizing, 
he continued spreading these lies and then added to the lies. Had I had my dad involved immediately or my older brother or my mom or literally anyone with any common sense, they would have said, call the police immediately. They would have said, file, sue for defamation immediately. This is someone who's not capable of changing. We constantly shame women or anyone who deals with issues like this on social media. Had I just done that, I would have saved myself a huge headache. Had I just posted all this on social media, I wouldn't have, like what I actually did was I went individually to every single woman because I found hundreds of texts. Like I, when I say I dig as an investigative journalist, I really dig. I found hundreds of texts of him saying horrible, horrible, horrible things about women. And I reached out to these women personally. I was like, do not tell this person things. This is what he's telling everyone about you. Because why would I, why would I let others be harmed? I think that, okay, so the immediate accountability aside from paying for what he did, like through financial compensation is removal from any sort of leadership positions. In the agreement we had, he was not supposed to be engaged in anything for the next year. No puts was for the next year. But things like that are hard to enforce when you have a chef who seems to still think it's acceptable to say, will you still marry him? The, the immediate response is take someone in there with you when you're dealing with this and make sure that they're advocating for you. But we also just need to stage a coup. I actually think that something that I want to be working on, inshallah, in the next year is like, I actually think a lot of, so religious institutions are uh, exempt from paying taxes in the U.S. I actually think any sort of religious institution that doesn't have people who are qualified to deal with uh, allegations of sexual abuse or sexual harassment should no longer be given that tax exemption. I would actually like to see legislation around this. We've gotten to a point where we cannot, cannot trust our elders. So we need to do it ourselves. Like we're not kids anymore. Pass legislation that makes it a requirement. And money talks. People are going to do this for the money. You're going to get a committee of people who are qualified to deal with this, who are capable of dealing with this, and who are, I don't know if they need to be elected by the community, but some sort of protective mechanism that protects abuse victims or abuse survivors in our religious institutions. Because realistically speaking, like, when you continuously devalue and oppress women inside the mosque, it stops being a mosque. It's now a community center. Do you not disrespect God and say this is the house of God when you treat his creation like this? When accountability isn't present, it literally gives the abuser the loophole to get away with whatever he's he's trying to do to young women, whatever women of any age. Like we're literally giving them these loopholes. And that's what we need to start closing off. And that's the unfortunate part. Well, when you do no background checks on your chefs or your community leaders, when you had any guy with a beard, the mic, there are no credentials required for doing any of this work. And that's what scares me. The the person obsessed with me that I'm dealing with right now, he studied under Nomad Ali Khan. One of his other mentors is also being investigated by face right now. These elders who raise the next generation of predators and honestly need to take back our religious spaces, if not even for our sake, for the sake of this generation to come, right? Like we cannot, I worry about the state of Islam in in, in North America because abuse should not be this common. Normalizing abuse should not be this common. And I think part of the reason that accountability is so hard to attain is because we've devalued the role of women to such an extent extent that accountability does not seem necessary. You treat what you respect and what you love with protection. Where's the lollipop analogy? What happened to that? The uncovered woman with the ants, I'd feed whatever, whatever. So it's like, so are we fair game for Muslim men to abuse us? Just not anybody else? Is that what you're saying? I honestly want to thank you so much, Iman, for sharing your story. You know, this is a conversation you and I agreed on having because we felt like there was just so many women, young women especially, that, you know, unfortunately can't spot red flags, unfortunately come from a community that might not support them if they were to come forth. I mean, you're dealing with this right now yourself. You know, accountability is something that we need to talk about 
more often. I think a lot of times the things that we go through, we sweep them under the rug. We assume that, you know, like you said before that, oh, God will take care of this. But, you know, it comes to a certain extent in regards to what we can handle behind closed doors and what needs to be made public. And when we are dealing with somebody that can possibly harm other women, which you also have proof of, we have to be able to protect the rest of our community, even if our community doesn't want to protect us. It's a very hard pill to swallow, to be honest. But again, I really want to thank you for sharing your story. This is something that takes a lot of courage to talk about. And it's not because there's any holes in your truth. Your truth is your truth. It's just the fact that you are being derailed almost from sharing your truth. And that's the unfortunate part. I just would love for you to just share any final thoughts in regards to what you've been going through. When we experience something like this and we don't get the accountability that we are deserving of and entitled to, it makes us doubt ourselves and it also makes us feel like this behavior is normal. What I've been repeating to myself repeatedly is my rights come from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And anyone who is denying me those rights is denying what God gave me. They don't have the power to do that. So it's almost like it becomes a mantra for you, right? Like it's like a first for me, it's like if I didn't know what I knew about Islam, and anyone told me that this is this is Islamically okay, or like the chefs, you know, because chefs become a representation of Islam, unfortunately. I would, this would not be a faith I practice. So I hope these chefs, fake chefs, I hope they understand what their consequence is gonna be from God. When they make people leave religion because of how much they've perverted it. With what I was dealing with, this guy was mentored by chefs who are very well-known predators. And the chef that I reached out to was someone who I found out later was, you know, manipulating women into staying with their abusive partners. You cannot expect someone like that to think you deserve accountability. Do not turn to people, turn to God. And then also, unfortunately, a lot of the people in our community are more afraid of non-Muslims and what non-Muslim people think about Islam than what Allah commands. And like you can, that can make you uncomfortable. You can dispute that, whatever it does. The truth is the truth, regardless of how you feel about it. The thought is constantly, we're a community that scrutinized, don't bring us more shame. I'm going to tell you that I am not someone who will cause harm to myself for the benefit of others. I will absolutely not do that. In Islam, like we're taught that like, like the truth is so important. Every lie is like a black dot on your heart. Like every lie that you tell, every time you do not speak the truth, it is essentially like dissolving your iman. In telling the truth, you find your power. In telling the truth, you rebuild your connection with Allah and Ta'ala. And anyone who is telling you to lie for the protection of others has no business teaching Islam. They need to know God is, is kind of what I have to say. So give yourself permission to speak your truth because that's what you deserve. And that's those that's your right. Don't let anyone talk you out of your truth. Advocate for yourself because you have an amendment to God to protect yourself. Thank you so much, Iman. You know, I think the whole theme of this is that we obviously have to always answer to God. And, you know, it's so unfortunate for those who want to protect Islam and the, protect the reputation of Islam. And ironically, you're also harming the image of Islam because if you have to protect an abuser to protect the reputation of Islam, that just does not make sense to me whatsoever. So I really want to thank you for coming on here, for sharing your story, for helping so many other women that are probably going through this or inshallah can prevent them from going through this. I think that this is the point of having these discussions is to prevent other people from having to face this. I'm truly going to keep you in my du'as because you are still 
going through the court hearings and everything like that. But you have so many people supporting you. I know there's just so much bad energy out there. I know there's so many people that are just like derailing you from this correct path that you should be on. Just know that there's so many more of us that will always protect you, that will always support you. I think that's sometimes all we need is to be able to just like publicly speak about something that we see others and almost majority of our community members are trying to sweep under the rug. But this isn't a rising epidemic. Like this is something that's really serious because the more we're talking about this, the more that we see a lot of other women are going through this as well. So thank you so much, Iman. I'll always keep you in my prayers. It really pains me to see you go through this, but you're just such a powerhouse and it's so incredible watching you do this. But it just also pains me that you have to go through this because nobody has to go through this. This could have all been prevented from the beginning. But thank you. Thank you so much for sharing your story. Of course. And anytime that somebody feels like they need to protect their community and protect their abuser by not speaking their truth, please look into Islam. Find me a single story from the time of the Prophet, peace be upon him, where someone was denied justice as a PR strategy. We cannot convince ourselves that we are in a more precarious position than the Sahaba. If anyone was more required to protect what Islam looked like, it would be the Prophet and the Sahaba. But they still, every single time, gave their women, their people in general, the justice they deserve, even if it was against other, other Muslims. So all of the excuses we're given to protect abusers are just that, things to protect abusers. So stop practicing misogyny, start practicing Islam, and we'll be good to go. Perfect way to end this. (laughs) Love you so much, Iman. Thank you. Thank you.